Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Scott Mather, the CIO at PIMCO. PIMCO is one of the world's premier fixed income managers. It was founded in 1971 in Newport Beach, California, and has since grown to having over $2 trillion in assets under management and nearly 3,000 employees in 17 offices across the globe. Scott joined PIMCO in 1998 and has held multiple roles at the firm. Before that, worked at Goldman Sachs after graduating from UPenn and the Wharton School. In our conversation, we spend the bulk of our time discussing ESG investing, its trade-offs, and its future in the financial sphere. Near the tail end of the episode, we also discuss the CFO task force that Scott's a part of in partnership with the United Nations and how many financial leaders are prioritizing social impact through investing. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let us know what you think on LinkedIn, Instagram, or shoot us an email at hello at scholarsoffinance.org. And don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review, and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues if you find it valuable. And today, uh, we are super fortunate to have Scott Mather with us. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Nice to be with you, Russ. Um, where does this call find you today? Uh, in our in our office on the 15th floor, uh, where there's only a couple people usually, and uh, I just... I have my pick of the conference room, so I just chose this one. So anyway. <laughs> nice, nice. And privacy colorful, in Newport Beach. Nice, lots of it right now. Uh, nice, colorful uh, beach painting from a local artist in back. People usually ask what that is. But anyway, yeah, we have some nice art, art hanging on the walls around here. I like it. I like it. Thanks for sharing that. It's from a local artist. For our listeners, um, you'll have to check out the YouTube video so you can catch a glimpse of the the magnificent piece sitting behind Scott in his office. Um, Scott, I am so excited to to speak with you today. Um, first and foremost, just for our, our listeners who aren't familiar with you or your background, can you share a bit about your life and your story? Yeah, sure. I. Uh... I guess uh, an unusual background. I grew up in Oregon in a uh, small lumber town. And uh, so it was kind of a pretty isolated place, beautiful place. Uh, but uh, definitely it was a kind of a one industry town. Uh, and, uh, some, you know, it seems like every, you know, it was one of these things like every recession or downturn caused huge unemployment and all kinds of things. But I don't know, for some reason, I, I became interested in, uh, in worldly affairs, I would say, and financial markets at an early age. I was a paper boy and I delivered a few Wall Street journals and occasionally would steal some peeks in there. And so it was, it was always fascinating to me and kind of led me to say, well, you know, I, I need to I need to get out of here. And I decided to uh, head east for the for a big culture shock and uh, ended up at the uh, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. So there you go. And the rest is history, um, decades on Wall Street. And now, um, can you tell us a little bit more about your role at PIMCO and, and some of your focus on ESG investments? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I, I sort of uh, managed the 
portfolio managers that manage uh, uh, portfolios that are focused on ESG or sustainability. And then I also manage the portfolio managers sort of in the traditional business for our large U.S. Uh, mutual funds, uh, as well as sort of a hands-on manager of some of the biggest funds that we have. So, you know, that's my current role. As you mentioned, I, I've had I've had others. I've uh, you know headed up our global portfolio management from Newport Beach, but also headed up European portfolio management. So I was in Europe for six years. Um, and prior to that, I was back here uh, co-heading the, the mortgage and asset-backed securities desk. So every every five or six years has brought me some sort of big change here. Yeah, it sounds like it's been a, an ever-evolving career uh, for the last two and a half decades. For our listeners who aren't familiar with PIMCO, can you share a little bit about PIMCO? Um, for some um, who haven't heard of PIMCO, I'll tell them now, PIMCO is a mammoth firm. Um, and the younger generation, a lot of them haven't heard of PIMCO yet, um, although they will, of course, very soon, either listening to this podcast or once they begin their career and understand just how significant of a player the firm is. Um, can you share a little bit more about the firm? Yeah, sure. It's, um, so we currently manage um, about $2.2 trillion uh, or dollar equivalents. That's you know for clients around the globe. Uh, and all kinds of clients. We manage retail mutual funds. Uh, we manage a lot of separate account money for you know, pension funds, uh, specifically uh, insurance companies, uh, basically every kind of, uh, you know, and, and corporations and, you know, what they have on balance sheet. Um, so really varied uh, climate, a varied uh, client mix. And uh, in terms of what we do, it's mostly fixed income, it's mostly bonds, but we also have a pretty large alternatives uh, business. It's about $30 billion. And you know, it doesn't, you know, it gets overshadowed by the other things we're doing. And we have uh, an equity business and a multi-asset business that together add up to about 50 billion. So um, a lot of different uh, pieces in motion that we have a sort of a, uh, a history that uh, has always made us, I guess, one of the biggest uh, in the bond market, uh, even though people, we might, might not be a household name, uh, we're certainly one of the biggest uh, uh traders and managers of fixed income uh, in the globe. So certainly if you uh, go to a, an investment bank um, and ask them who their biggest counterparties are in the world of trading, uh, you know, we'll, we'll show up. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, thanks for sharing. Uh, oh, it's incredible. And I should, go ahead. I was getting one more point. And, you know, almost everything we do is in the active space. So we're, you know, we're not, uh, you know, we're not big in the ETF space. We're not a passive manager. We are very performance oriented. So always seeking to beat benchmarks and deliver better risk adjusted returns. So it's kind of uh, in that in that sense, we're sort of unique from some other large uh, asset managers and that everything we do is active. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's an important additional point to make. Um, talking a bit more in, in detail about the investments the firm is making, I wanted to ask about your focus on ESG. Um, you have a background in engineering. You've worked in global markets throughout the course of your career. Um, I'm curious if that experience informed your work in ESG or really what drove you to focus a lot of your investment activity on ESG. Yeah, I think that's a bit of it. I, you know, uh, still always, you know, have an eye for, you know, science and what's going on in, in, in the world, uh, maybe away from direct application to financial markets. And so 
yeah, I mean, for a long time, I've been concerned about the pace of change um, uh, and, and the challenges that we face with respect to the E aspect and the environment, and the, they're all around us. And certainly I have detected for a long time uh, that they, you know, creating many, many more problems for, uh, for us all as we, as the world population grows and we continue to consume resources and all those types of things. Um, and, you know, I think too, uh, it made, made me more comfortable, I guess, with some of the subject matter in terms of digging into it a bit, um, in terms of thinking about how it may have an impact, uh, and we is having a big impact now, of course, on, on companies and financial markets and society at large. So I looked around at, uh, at Pemkill, we've, we've sort of, you know, we've been early in that space. We launched what were the first socially responsible uh, mutual funds back in the late 1980s. So, uh, you know, back, that, back then, that was the way people were looking at sustainability. It was largely just based on excluding uh, problematic sectors from uh, the opportunity set of what you're managing. But we were early in that. Uh, one of the early signatories too to the principles for responsible investment, which is now this huge organization, uh, basically a hundred trillion uh, of assets represented in that. But when we joined in 2011, it was pretty early days uh, and early for an asset manager. So we sort of have this history of being uh, involved in these sorts of uh, these sorts of issues, and we've also you know, we're kind of the firm that uh, is always thinking about innovation and very focused on what the next five to 10 years will bring. Um, so that's, you know, we have lots of processes built and lots of discussions and lots of research on ongoing to think about, you know, what's going to be important, not just, you know, this year. And that usually takes too much of people's mind share. You know, it's usually, and even for professional investors that know better and know they should be acting differently, it's just human nature. They get consumed by what happened last month and what's going to happen next month. But that's why we institute all these processes to push our thinking out, and it spills over into business planning, et cetera. So when when I took a look around in about 2000 and really about 2015, um, you know, I, I saw that we were doing these, you know, interesting interesting work in different areas related to ESG and sustainability. But there was a huge opportunity uh, that I saw, which is really to uh, better unify our efforts and to get bigger buy-in. Uh, because what I, I saw this is, you know, I describe describe it now as a mega trend that's going to impact society and financial markets uh, in ever greater ways every year. And so, you know, we organized ourselves, spent some time studying how, what's the best way to to think about organizing our activities. I think we came out with a, a winning strategy uh, we, and we came out with what we call our ESG platform uh, with the idea that what we want to do is be able to provide the best in-class advice uh, to investors uh, of all sorts and, you know, that speak different languages of sustainability. And, you know, you'll find different people that have a different focus. Some people might be really wanting to focus on the social aspects. Some might be wanting to focus on environmental. Some are more tilted towards governance as being the dominant thing. But um, and, and it varies uh, in different regions of the world. So the concept was to say, let's get everybody at the firm involved in this effort, uh, which is different than how many people have approached it. You know, let's get every every group uh, to develop some expertise. And that's how we can really be powerful. That's always served us well at PIMCO is to really get the whole firm moving in the same direction together. And so uh, 
as they say, no, no good deed uh, goes unpunished. And they say, well, Scott, why don't you lead that from the investment side? Okay. So that's how, that's how that ended up happening. Uh, as has happened many times with changes in my career here. So it's been, you know, it's an exciting thing because you've got so many people involved here and, uh, and, and we're, I, I think, well, if I'm being uh, honest, I, I pretty much know we're leading in the industry on uh, certainly from the fixed income side in in developing the marketplace and putting ourselves in the best position to give that advice to uh, to our clients. So that's sort of the you know, that's the goal for us is to keep pushing forward. And uh, I can talk about you know later if you want some of the you know market innovations that we sort of inspired and, and kind of how we go about thinking of uh, engaging and this is a big part of our platform, how we engage with corporate clients, how we engage with policymakers, regulators, and uh, how we engage with investment banks to sort of develop the marketplace. I would absolutely love to ask you a handful of questions on, on both subjects. Um, first, I want to dive into ESG a little bit more. And because you're an expert in this field, uh, and are a leader, as you have mentioned, rightfully so, in the industry and in a lot of the developments in this market, you know, going back decades now, you know, several decades, I wanted to get your thoughts on ESG in a little more detail. Um, at PIMCO, you, quote, exclude, evaluate, and engage companies in order to develop an ESG-minded offering, where engagement entails working with companies to encourage them to make changes to their planning in order to improve their standing. Um, so this actually goes to your engagement question. Can you tell us a bit more about how this engagement typically fares, what this engagement looks like? Yeah, happy to do that. We uh, so we have the opportunity. We've you know to engage. We have thousands of meetings with issuers per year. I mean, one of the things that people forget about the fixed income market, which is a little bit different than the equity market, is you know issuers of bonds have to come back and resell their story. Right? And they have to con they have to be concerned about the ratings and they have to really care about what their large investors think, because we can decide to sell our bonds and not buy the next uh, series if we want. Right. So they, they have a natural interest in, in this dialogue. So we have this dialogue with them. And, you know, I would say we have a, a deep dialogue on ESG matters with over 600 issuers. And I think I think we just it'll be coming out in a couple of weeks, our new annual ESG report, which sort of describes these engagement activities. But basically what we do is uh, engage with issuers on what we think the most material factors are uh, for risks or opportunities for their business and the things that investors care about and things that rating agencies are going to care about because uh, they care about all those things. And uh, so it's different by industry uh, and it's different, different by geography. Um, so we develop, uh, we have our own internal ESG scores and a template for what's important, what's material. Of course, we can change that over time. So we don't, you know, we're not attempting to engage them on 50 subjects, right? We want to engage on the things we think are most important for that particular industry or organization, right? And so we use our analysts. We have a very large analyst group. They're experts in all those industries. Uh, and every issuer basically uh, has its own analyst. And so what we do is we work with them to develop a template for what we think uh, that issuer should consider or do that would improve their ESG-ness. You know, what, what will they do to keep moving forward? And sometimes it means sharing, you know, okay, this is what your competitors are doing and this is what we like to see. Uh, and you know, it's, they're pretty receptive. I mean, we, we say it's cooperative. I mean, we're not, uh, we're not there to name and shame. Uh, we don't don't really ever do that, 
what we are there to do is to you know, provide advice to them and say, look, these are things that are important. You should really try to address these issues because it's either going to be a, a risk or a big opportunity for you. So there's a pretty receptive dialogue uh, that we have. And then we track those engagements internally. We have a system so that basically everybody can see everybody we've engaged on and we track it over time. So for us, a big part of uh, the engagement process is tracking the momentum that we have. How quickly uh, uh, is a particular company or issuer moving forward? Uh, and are they delivering on the commitments they've made in the past? And that's you know, to this idea of momentum. And so that's an important part of our framework. And um, you know, what we'll do, of course, you know, this is fairly recent uh, with respect to ESG because we really ramped up this platform in 2015. Um, so, you know, we don't have 20 years of history, but it's still pretty in, you know, relevant when you just look, you know, look back the last three to five years. So uh, that's an important part is to track, uh, be as quantitative as you can, but certainly track progress. And, you know, look, if we if we find somebody's not delivering or really lagging, uh, it's certainly going to change their, you know, certainly change your rating within. And I would describe it just just another foray off here into the uh, wilderness. But what you find in ac academic studies, and there are lots of them, is that uh, there's a big correlation between you know management quality and their focus on sustainability and ESG. It's almost like a mark uh, of distinction. And you'll find that like even if you ignore what they're doing directly with respect to ESG and sustainability, there's a very good correlation between those are, who have well-developed sustainability frameworks and plans with other signs of management quality. And that's why you tend to see those companies doing better. So, you know, that's that's just another way to think about it and why it's so important for us to integrate it into everything we do, not just like a narrow set of ESG products. Yes, it's important for those, but it's really important in thinking about it, you know, how we evaluate everything we, we're investing in. When you think about how you are evaluating what you're investing in, when you're looking at the broad spectrum of criteria that you're assessing, um, think about key markets, key industries um, where there are you know best in their best in class investments or potentially worst in class investments. I'm wondering um, when you look out at the landscape, what would you consider best in class investment sectors that are also exceptional on ESG criteria and screening? Kind of what what meets both the return and the ESG criteria um, best in, in your experience? Right. Well, typically, if you look at um, well, let's say certain sectors, it's technology. Okay, they have big benefits, but they've also made big strides. Right, getting shifting to renewable energy, all the big tech players they have tend to be very focused internally on sort of this idea of stakeholder, you know, capitalism, if you will. So they've cared a lot about not just what investors think, but what their employees think what their customers think. So on lots of these metrics, you know, that is, if you just look in absolute terms, that's an example of an industry that, you know, scores really high. But what, you know, what the way we typically approach is say, okay, that's great. Um, you, yeah, you might want to have a, a technology tilt. But uh, what we're really trying to do with our ESG scoring system is to look within a peer universe. So basically we could say, okay, if you want to invest in, look, if you want to invest in, in an oil and gas you know, sector or, or benchmark, well, we can provide until we can tell you our views on who is best and who's moving the fastest, uh, right, and responding to the challenges that they're going to face. So, you know, we're not trying to, once again, the idea is, you know, there's especially the big investors that we do, do business with, you know, they need, 
they deploy very well diversified, sophisticated portfolio strategies. And so they might be investing in sectors that don't meet those absolute metrics, but they still want to make sure that they're invest, investing in the best in that sector. So I think that's that's really kind of how we're approaching it. That's the value we add. Now, I mean, I just cited two probably extreme examples of absolute ESGness, right? I mean, you've got, you know, technology up there, and then you've got, of course, you know, the fossil fuel business, which has, in many cases, it's not just because of the carbon footprint, um, but also because they'll have a history of, of, of uh, you know, controversy with respect to employment, you know, their labor standards, um, and, uh, and a host of other environmental problems and, and things to deal with. So, there you go. There's two extreme, extreme uh, industries. But you know, the, the the concept we have is to not tell people that oh, you shouldn't invest in those things because there's there's a good reason why many people need to. And here's another idea too. I mean, look, you know, some of the big major fossil fuel companies have already you know put on the agenda on the calendar saying we are not going to be, uh, we will not be a fossil fuel company. We'll be an energy company. And so that transition is underway. And within the next 10 or 20 years, they're making the big shift. And so, you know, you want to, as an investor, there's good reasons to think, well, you might want to be part of funding that transition. I mean, you want them to survive. You want, you know, we need energy and, you know, you want to invest in the ones that are making the transformation uh, happen. As you talk about technology um, being, you know, an example of a best in class in, in investment, uh, class and also excellent on ESG markers, um, high ESGness, as you said, and actually begs a question about crypto. Um, I don't know if you hear at all about Elon Musk's um, commentary on crypto, um, on Tesla accepting it for payment and then not accepting it for payment because of the energy impact. Um, would be incredibly curious because everyone's talking about crypto right now, um, what your perspective is on cryptocurrency, both as an investor broadly, um, but also as someone who is focused on ESG, just given its environmental, social and governance implications on the world and on companies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, it's it, it makes no sense uh, if you look at it, you know, in terms of the energy drain, energy impact, right? Um, it's, it's it's very poor. And I mean, you look at the comparisons, I forget exactly how many countries it represents just Bitcoin alone in terms of their energy consumption. But that's the scale of the mining. And of course, it gets more and more energy intensive over time. So um, there's some problems there now. OK, that's that's an example. I, I didn't realize that they, you know, Tesla, the example you said that they moved away from accepting Bitcoin for those reasons. But I remember seeing the headlines and thinking, this is not going to go well. Uh, so there's an example of, you know, maybe maybe thinking it through a little bit f- uh, further would have helped. Now, I you know, we have groups here working on a lot of, you know, cryptocurrency uh, and, and we trade some uh, ourselves. But um, look, it's early days and I think it's too early to say where it's going. Uh, you know, there's a lot of skeptics here on our side as well. But I have to think this this problem with the energy consumption is is going to be a problem at some point. I don't know what happens. I don't know if, if it's required. You know, maybe you could think about a tax on holdings. You could think about a transaction tax. But I don't think it's going to be able to, you know, escape the eyes of any um, regulators, um, largely because of that. I think you're you're right. Definitely, um, when you look at some of the figures, um, it is 
absolutely astronomical looking at the energy usage of it. So um, I think we, we there hopefully will be some really meaningful pressure on technological innovation on the mining process itself. Um, I think you're going to see that forced um, just because of the amount of, of, of assets going into the space. Um, I mean, the, the market cap of decentralized finance has increased tenfold um, re- mm-hmm. just recently. Um, you see a massive explosion in Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and all the major all the major um, coins in the market. And I would hope at a minimum to see that there is massive transformation in the technology behind it to reduce the energy consumption. Um, that said, there's there's trade-offs. I want to ha- kind of move into a conversation about trade-offs broadly um, as it relates to ESG. Um, just like with cryptocurrency, there are, there are trade-offs between um, liquidity in the market and accessibility in the market. Um, regulation and energy um, and ESG oftentimes clients will see a trade-off between returns um, and their portfolio is being ESG responsible um, so I'm curious to what extent you your clients or you historically had clients think there is a trade-off between returns and um, having their portfolios uh, meet ESG benchmarks yeah that's um like I think you know the percentage of 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 clients and and investors that think that it is necessary that you give up returns to invest in a more uh, ESG or sustainable fashion is declining, but it's still out there. There's a group, you know, I say people were really skeptical maybe five years ago, but there's more evidence, of course, that you can outperform by focusing in in on sustainability issues. Um, so, like anything in investment, I, I say there's a you know there's a way to do it wrong. And there's a way to do it better and and right. Um, And you're always going to have a mix of people out there in the marketplace, right? Some are going to get it wrong and some are going to get it right. And the other thing to consider, too, is I I, I say it's a little bit like if somebody just came and said, uh, you know, I want to invest in in credit, uh, let's say. Uh, Well, uh, that doesn't tell us much, right? Do they really want to invest in in a very um, uh, focused area? Um, some subsector of the market with the highest uh, potential returns, or do they want diversification? Do they want to be global? Do they want to be focused on the U.S. Do they want to be invested in investment grade or high yield or loans, or you know, it goes on and on. So it doesn't tell you much. Just like when someone comes and says, "Well, I want to invest in in ESG or sustainability," there's a spectrum of opportunity. And what we've observed is if you keep the opportunity set large and you kind of approach approach it that way, then I think. We think that's the best chance of delivering very good uh, risk-adjusted returns that are consistent with you know prior history. Now the world's changing so fast. I question whether some of the you know, I mean, the history doesn't tell you so much when when you have the pace of change on E and S accelerating so quickly. I'm not sure that history tells you if you invest in a non non ESG fashion, you're going to get the returns you used to get. Sometimes, Ross, I approach it this way. I tell people, well, if you can make so much money by in investing in the worst ESG companies, then where are all those ETFs? Where are all those strategies? I don't see them. So that tells me something. Because if you can make a lot of money doing that, someone would be doing it. It's the opposite, right? So, you know, you can kind of just look at the marketplace. I mean, I'm willing to say that, you know, if it gets very extreme, there could be some group of poor ESG performers that get so cheap you know, that you could make money by investing in them. 
But what you see is the opposite. Typically, you know, you can improve risk-adjusted returns by incorporating this information into your analysis, and it is a sign of management quality. Uh, companies that have those well-developed plans are thinking more further forward, and they're thinking about stress testing. Nobody knows exactly, you know, the pace of change. All, it, all, all they seem to observe and agree with is it's accelerated. So if you don't have a strategy and you don't have uh, the ability to stress test and do the what-ifs, and think forward three to five years, you're, you're much more vulnerable. So, you know, I, I'm getting to this point of, you, you know, you don't you, you don't have to give up, uh, you know, returns necessarily. You need to think about, you know, you need to think about it very carefully. Um, and uh, you need to keep the oppor- opportunity set broad. I would say on the o- other end of the spectrum, let's say you only want to invest, let's say you're an equity investor or you're a bond investor and you only want to invest in renewable energy. Well, okay, that's an extreme example, but you're going to have more. You're going to have a, a higher volatility portfolio, perhaps, uh, than if you are a diversified investor. You'll be very, you know, you'll be very uh, e-centric uh, and and score well on on those metrics. But of course, you might not have the best risk-adjusted returns. You're not diversified, right? You're in one you're in one industry, susceptible to how that develops, right? And more concentrated, probably, in a handful of companies. So. Um, that's that's how I, I think we approach it and answer that question. It's like saying, you know, if you're a credit investor, you know, are you going to uh, deliver X returns or what is your risk adjusted return? Well, I mean, don't know because don't know what you mean by being a credit investor. And once again, there'll be people who even if you did know what it meant, you said, well, I, it's global investment grade credit. There's going to be people who do it well and there's going to be people who don't do it well. So, you know, you can't you can't really form an opinion on that basis. It's really interesting to think about um, how portfolios have performed over time, uh, when you, especially when you're looking at these ESG indices and comparing and benchmarking these portfolios against them. Um, ESG indices have done quite well recently. Um, and some argue that this is due to factor exposure. Uh, many indices have a lot of exposure to tech, which has done really well since the great financial crisis, and relatively little exposure to energy and value stocks, which have done rather poorly. Um, do you see ESG doing well, even in the case that certain sectoral winds change? Well, I think, or do you think the you wind know, is blowing in the, in this direction, and and ESG is just getting behind? Um, where the winds are blowing for the, for good. Well, yeah, it's, and when it comes down to this issue of you know how concentrated your ESG portfolio is versus the alternative, and um, you know I, I still think there's there'll be cycles where it's pretty obvious. You know the one that we've just gone through where it's pretty obvious what's driving some of the performance because you can just it's 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 far too obvious you know that it's uh you know the, the you know coming through the COVID crisis and what that's done and you know, what technology is done relative to, um, you know, rather to, to travel and leisure, et cetera. Right. Um, so um, I, I usually describe it. They're going to be different cycles. And I think as, as, as an investor, if you're going to invest in a, let's say, ESG sensitive way, um, you can expect maybe a different sort of return profile. But I would still expect if you're doing it in a sensible way, you're doing it correctly. You're doing it. You're, you're, the application is everything. Um, then even though you might be a slightly different cycle, you, sh- you should you know, have every reason to believe that incorporating those factors and that analysis is going to put you uh, ahead of the game in terms of risk-adjusted returns over a cycle. So over, a th- let's call it a three to five-year cycle. So you, know, you shouldn't expect a, you know, 
zero tracking error with uh, with what's going on with the traditional portfolio. But over time, those things wash out. So that's that's what I you know we usually talk about with clients. That makes complete sense, and I appreciate you sharing. I, I'm I'm just thinking through what those conversations must look like. Um, and I'm curious how favorable and how open clients have been to those conversations recently. And if you've seen those conversations going more smoothly in the last year versus two, three years ago, even amidst COVID and a lot of the changes that we've been seeing. Yeah, there's, we, we have a lot the number one things. We have a lot more of those conversations. They've grown about 30% year on year for each of the past couple of years, even through this uh, past COVID year. Um, so it, you know, that's what I mean by this mega trend. I mean, it's yeah. There's a lot more conversations. Um, there's a lot more uh, uh, movement in that direction. Uh, the amount of let's say ES, let's say ESG insensitive assets that we manage about 650 billion, and that keeps growing. So um, gives you some idea of of what's taking place. Um, now you may you know and and that's how we sort of you know form the dividing line. But um, you just have this here huge year-on-year year increase, and that means as usual there's a spectrum of people in terms of their knowledge and what they want to accomplish. And you know many are just starting, and if they're just starting, I mean we spend a lot of time with them talking about the first uh, the first steps to take. Uh, and then there's the ones that are really advanced, right? And they you know they they know exact they know exactly what they want to accomplish. They're looking for the metrics that we could provide on every uh, aspect. And uh, they want to see that improvement uh, and track it over time with respect to ESG. So, um, yeah, there's a spectrum. But I think the, the thing, the most important thing to think is, is about how quickly the interest is growing. And uh, I mean, some people ask the question, well, if it grows at this rate, won't it be the whole market? Well, yeah, that's the point. It should be the whole market at some point. That's the idea, right? I mean, that's that's the that's that will happen at some point where it's so mainstream that maybe we don't separate it anymore. It's just one of the things you do, like, you know, like it's it's part of the analysis. Like you wouldn't think of you know ignoring the income statement or you know not looking at you know the balance sheet. You know, but maybe you should you know maybe at some point you could see like sustainability and ESG factors will be perhaps, and I think this is direction incorporated into the traditional financial reporting. So, you know, if that's the case, yeah, it'll be, it'll be mainstream at, at some point and, and uh, that would be a good thing. As you describe that future, I hope it is the future that we see. I hope that in my lifetime, I get to see that world. And um, thanks to the work that you're doing at PIMCO and that you're doing with a lot of your partners, I'm confident that we may be able to see that world too. Um, for whatever my my opinion or my, my forecast is worth, um, one thing that's interesting is Warren Buffett recently successfully opposed two shareholder resolutions calling for Berkshire Hathaway to compile annual reports on how companies are meeting ESG targets. Um, he mentioned doing this might be onerous as the companies are small and that it can be, quote, very tough to decide which ones benefit society. I'm curious what you think of that those criticisms you think they're mostly germane to Berkshire Hathaway or are there problems for investors across the landscape? Well, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, look, there's, there's problems in terms of reporting and getting started with that for many companies and the smaller companies that, you know, smaller that you are, the more onerous it may seem, right? Because you don't have these you know teams of people that you can deploy to do this. 
Um, I mean, I saw that criticism, but I, I could, I can, uh, I can see the future and the future is going to be uh, mandatory reporting. Now, what the cutoff is in terms of size and what that reporting looks like, um, not quite sure. But I can tell you that's, I mean, this obviously happened in Europe already, and the thresholds there are relatively small in terms of the breakpoints. Um, and so, they're, you know, they're capturing a lot of mid-sized companies. Um, you know, and so whether, you know, and I think that's that's happening in the rest of the world, and, and of course, the um, the SEC has an open comment period right now in the U.S. on what should should be happening in the sector, and so lots of industry organizations and and uh, and people like our firm are giving them ideas about what that could look like to try to make it not too onerous, right? Remember the first steps, you know, are, are important steps, um, and you know maybe maybe the right idea is to have have these breakpoints where smaller companies don't have to do as much, but. Um, but the the issue that that uh, he's going to face is that um, Berkshire is not a small company. So <laughs> there you go, and uh, that's you know that's that's uh, just going to be the fact. Um, and it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, so so you know, he's a large conglomerate. I mean, I don't think large conglomerates are going to get a break in this just because you know they could say, well, look, we have these. Uh, look, you know, I mean, any company can make this. They could say, well, I, that division is small. That division is small. I shouldn't have to report on those. I mean, come on, that's not that's not going to work. So, I don't think it's going to be a successful line of argumentation. But it's fine, I guess, to buy a year or two. <laughs> <laughs> it's inevitable, Warren. Just get it's on board. Inevitable. You might as well do it now and save yourself yeah. the Reuters headlines. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> um, it's interesting going back to your point about. Uh, you know, ESG criteria being as standard as, you know, three state, you know, three statement uh, fin financial analysis, um, that sort of being a long term outcome, it just becomes something you do. Um, you don't even think about it as something special or unique or differentiating necessarily. Um, that actually begs this kind of broader system level question, kind of moving from this conversation about trade offs into the longer term and system level implications of e ESG investing. Do you think in your mind or among the minds of investors, there is some kind of specific specific goal or concrete endpoint um, in terms of the various measures which have been constructed for ESG? Or is it more about constant improvement until we reach that day where we realize we've been doing this thing for a hundred years and we used to have a name for it and it used to be a it used to be a thing and now it's just what we do. Um, is there some sort of day where ESG investors say, great, like we've achieved our goal or is it just constantly iterating? I think it's going to be constantly iterating. Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, you know, it'd be, it'd be ridiculous to, to think that we're going to see enough improvement where, you know, we sit back and say, oh, job done. Uh, and, and I think people just realize, I mean, the, the realization is that the, path of, you know, sort of the economic models and the path that we've been on for the past, let's call it, you know, 30, 40 years is not sustainable. A lot of things are going to have to change, right? You can't, you know, I mean, it's, it's huge disparities around the world, huge problems um, that need to be solved. And of course, we've got the big environmental and climate problems, which may be the most important to get underway um, at the moment. So, you know, to think that we're going to be successful and, 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 uh, it doesn't mean 
people shouldn't try, but to, to be successful, um, you know, is it, uh, it's it's going to be a difficult journey. Let's put it that way. To be to really be able to say, oh, mission accomplished. I mean, you know, there are targets out there. Um, of course, you see the net zero commitments. You know, where we're trying to get, you know, the, the Paris alignment. Okay, trying to be on that trajectory uh, to to keep uh, to keep temperatures below one and a half C. Okay, that's not it's weird. We, you know, that's not going to happen. I mean, we should be talking about two C right now. And um, you know, if there's not a lot of action, we'll be talking about three C, and that's a big problem, right? So that's but but there's a timeline, and you know, there's a path. So that's an example of you know. A, a, a scientifically based path that puts us on to net zero by 2050. And then you see lots of companies and countries committing to say, well, we're going to develop plans to get there by 2035, right? Do more than their fair share. Um, so that's an example of, of clear targeted framework. I, you know, the other one I'd mention is, and it doesn't get enough uh, airplay in, in, in the U.S. maybe, but it does if you look at the financial markets and what's taking place in, uh, you know, reporting is the sustainable development goals, uh, which you know came out in 2015, sort of a globally agreed framework, 17 goals addressing all sorts of sustainability issues. Um, and if you look under those, you know, then there's 169 key performance measures. So, you know, and those get analyzed, you know, every year. Um, so there's there's an there's a framework that people can look at and say, okay, you know, what does it mean when we're talking about um, you know, healthcare. What does it mean when we're talking about, you know, justice? And what does it mean when we're talking about, you know, the, the, you know, to underlying, you know, look at the underlying KPIs. But even if those get achieved by 2030, which is the goal, the 2030 agenda, um, you know, it doesn't mean that everything would be solved. And of course, when you look at what's, uh, you know, there's a lot of effort uh, by countries to move in that direction, but uh, you know, way off target so far. You know, <laughs> so going, you know, five, six years into it. So anyway, it's uh, it, it's just to say that there are frameworks out there. Um, they're constantly evolving, but it's good to have a target, and you and you need a date um, to get people, you know, focused on that and get you know to build up a coalition of people to move. I love it. It's constant iteration. We have goals that we can look to that we can have in our mind's eye that are scientifically based, as you said, empirically based. Um, that world governments, major corporations, major investors like PIMCO have all agreed on um, are, are goals that we should all work towards. And there are, are some actors, corporations, governments who are uh, even trying to to buck the trend, who are trying to get, get to those goals in half the time as some others pulling uh, more than their fair share. Um, it's interesting when you hear about the ecosystem, the sort of the system level commitments to ESG, to improving um, our portfolios in this way. I'm wondering from your perspective over time, or even recently, if the trend toward ESG is pushed by investor demand or is it the result of you know governmental or institutional leadership? Like you've talked about some of the market innovations that you've inspired at PIMCO um, earlier that I'd love to talk about in a moment. Um, but yeah, is it investor demand driving this? Is it institutional leadership? Is it both? We'd love to hear where you think the the mega trend is really coming from. Yeah, I, I see it coming from from many directions. I mean, it, it really, I would say, you know, this latest surge is is more investor, you know, uh, driven. Excuse me, and um, 
but you know, before that, it was it was largely governments and the voting population. I mean, if you look at Europe, okay, you know, the Green Party, for instance, um, is very well represented in many many countries. You know, and you know, so there was a political movement, and the political movement was then pushing you know movements down into pushing that down into business, and then investors responded. Right, uh, so that's an example where that push you know was more politically led. Uh, but if you look at uh, you know. I mean, the the wherever you see these political movements, uh, you see investors caring a lot more, and that's part of that movement. I, and I would say, you know, even part of what we've seen in the U.S. right with what's going on with this administration's agenda, and especially on climate, but a variety of other things. Right? I mean, they didn't, you know, it wasn't just like you know twenty years ago that they were all individually focused on those issues, right? It, it's part of it's politically driven, and there's a market response that's happening, at, you know, at the same time. So I think, you know, it goes it goes hand in hand, um, these sort of movements. Um, and there's a kind of a, a moment, you know, it seems like different different countries, different issues. There's a spark. There's, you know, sort of a, a certain critical mass of interest or focus on it. And then it takes off. And, you know, it, from many different sectors, whether it's regulatory or political or it's all market driven. Right. It, yeah, it begs a question about institutional leadership. And I just I have a few more questions I, I'd love to ask if we have enough time for me to get to a few more. Um, when you look at the institutional leadership, I, I want to bring up Japan's $1.6 trillion government pension investment fund. Um, they made bullish investment investments in ESG indices um, recently, and it, they recently had to back away from some of these positions due to poor relative performance. Um, Japan's yeah government um, pension investment fund is required to hit a yearly return target. And I'm wondering if you see such behavior like this, like this retreat from their ESG portfolio as a problem. Um, do you see similar behavior among investors who have a bit more slack in this system, if you will? Uh, don't see much of that pullback behavior. I mean, that one's a notable one, but once again, it comes down to, uh, look, I, I, there was a lot of politics involved in that. So I'm not, you know, I don't know all the details, but it's not as if, um, a clear and transparent accounting of the financial performance is what was necessarily guiding it. So, uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, and I say that cause I know former people from uh, GPIF and I talk to them and, you know, so some of them are, are out there very focused on sustainability now today. Um, and so I get a different read on, on exactly that particular instance, but we don't see, we don't see too much of that happening. With the, thank you. With the institutional leadership that PIMCO is providing as an example, would love to understand what you think institutional leadership will look like and needs to look like. Um, and this would be a great time for you to share some of those market innovations that you mentioned PIMCO has inspired in the process of being an institutional leader towards ESG. Yeah, happy to do that. I like every, I usually, you know, when talking to, uh, uh, you know, senior management of, of large companies, I usually describe it this way. Look, there's every large company has a host of sustainability, uh, businesses probably that they're in um, that are really focused on on those particular topics and they have other parts of their business that have challenges and risks if they don't come up with a good plan so you know the point is you know all almost any large company has these 
And, and, you know, we could identify, you know, five or 10 that are the most material to their financial well-being and performance over time. And so when they start thinking about like that, then they say, okay, well, yeah, yeah you're right. And you know, we want to we wanna address those risks and we certainly want to take advantage of those opportunities and grow those businesses that are focused on these sustainability factors and, and, and businesses. Um, so then they start thinking about, okay, this is a way to add value to the organization. And one thing that we encourage them to do is, is you know, if you adopt this idea of focus on the stakeholders, I mean, increasingly your consumers care about it and they want to know what you're doing uh, and they respond well to it when you've developed products that are aligned with that mission. Uh, your employees care about it. Um, it's difficult to attract and retain talent unless you're focused on this and your investors care about it. So, you know, one of the speaking about the innovations, things that we've brought to brought into being that, that uh, allows more companies to clearly define that mission and to align their balance sheet and their capital markets activities are these, you know, what are called sustainability uh, linked bonds. And sometimes I call them SDG bonds, but basically just saying that you, you can find uh, businesses that are making advancements and it may not, they may not be able to issue a green bond, you know, cause they're not building, you know, something that's directly a green or renewable energy, but they can set some targets. They can focus on those pieces of businesses and they can link the capital markets activity with that. And by doing that, investors have a way to directly invest with that company and that mission. And they have a way to describe really what they're doing to not just investors, but also to other stakeholders. So, you know, that, that part of the uh, bond market is growing very, very quickly. Um, you know, more like a hundred percent year on year. Uh, and we think that that ultimately will be, you know, green bonds will be a subset of this. So think about a, you know, $10 trillion marketplace or so within a few years. So, you know, that's, it, and, and we think it's, you know, it's, it's one of these things that always, it causes companies, whenever you develop a plan like this, you know, they, they, they also start raising the bar faster within the company, right? Everybody gets more, uh, more focused on on what they're doing and gets excited about it and there's just more movement. So that's that's one of the reasons why we think it's it's an exciting sort of innovation for investors because they can align with that mission. Uh, they can understand it better, but also what it does within a company. I mean, as soon as we've observed this time and time again, as soon as a company issues a green bond or a sustainability link bond, all of a sudden the C-suite starts to care about it more. It trickles through the rest of the organization. Um, that's really an important, you know, kind of factor in changing, changing uh, company behavior. That reminds me, and this is one of the uh, two final questions I want to ask you. Um, the second to last is about the CFO task force. You talk about changing company behavior. Um, you and I, over the course of the last year, have talked, spoken a lot about this UN Global Compact um, CFO principles on integrated. SDG investments and finance. Um, and you have helped co-launch this CFO task force. I mean, as I understand it, it includes sev the 17 sustainable development goals, um, some of which are quite ambitious, zero hunger, complete gender equality. Um, I would love it if you can share with our audience a bit about your CFO task force and what CFOs are doing to advance this cause and the role that you and PIMCO are playing in that. Sure. Yeah. The, um, so the UN Global Compact, if people haven't heard about it, uh, it's the largest global group of, of, of associated companies. It's about 13,000 of all sorts of different sizes, and that keeps growing uh, pretty substantially. Um, and it's led by, the, it's, it's sort of the private sector of the UN, which uh, many people don't know that exists. But 
they should. It's it's a pretty. There's lots of country networks and lots of interesting things taking place there. Um, so in participating with them in some other event, events, um, you know, it, it was the idea. I mean, we kind of noticed from our engagement from that we do with corporations that there was a gap. You know, there was the companies had sustainability officers, and then they had the CEO, but then the treasurer, treasurer, and the chief financial officer were very not often very not engaged. Uh, on what's going on in sustainability or these market developments. So we thought this would be really powerful if we could build a platform, an association where one, they could learn from one another in a pragmatic way, uh, and then also understand how to make value within the organization, whether it's their capital markets activities, you know, and issuing things like sustainability link bonds and uh, and green bonds, or whether it's coming up with a value proposition uh, for sustainability within the organization. I mean, this is a group CFOs, uh, you know, of, you know, are basically doing close to 15 trillion in annual investment globally, right? So they have the purse strings and, you know, they make investment decisions. So that's the, that's maybe the most important group you want to talk to. Uh, but, you know, so, so we thought let's build this uh, organization and uh, start with trying to get every country and every large business or industry represented. We're up to, you know, something like 60 or so, so far. Uh, with the goal of go- going to 300 by the end of this year. and But the idea is to really make a template. Uh, so one, they can learn from one another how to create value based around sustainability within their organization, how they can report and share that with their stakeholders, and how they can you know navigate the capital markets uh, better with that. So, um, and then importantly, the, the lasting uh, effect will be that small and medium-sized companies can find something in every one of those 300 companies that looks, some business that looks like them and a country that they're from or based in. And so that they can, even if they don't have this huge amount of resources, they say, aha, you know, I could do that, right? I, I could address this. I could, you know, I could uh, build a business around that, or I could describe this to better to my stakeholders. So that's the goal in the end. We just, we, you know, we developed this platform where they all get to advance and build that value uh, by by following these principles, um, but more importantly, uh, the global benefit will be you know creating this easy uh, you know learning uh, you know learning platform for the medium and small size businesses. It's absolutely inspiring, Scott. Um, every time you provide an update on the CFO task force in any forum for scholars of finance, and I get to hear it, there's more CFOs that have signed up. It's gotten larger. The momentum is absolutely thrilling. Uh, thanks for sharing um, for all of our listeners. Um, with that said, I know we're coming up on time here, so I'm just going to ask you one final question. Um, it's a bit of a softball about scholars of finance. Um, you, you and I now, we've been going back and forth for over a year Um, talking about scholars of finance. Um, You've helped inform our vision for scholars of finance, our vision of a world where all finance leaders are stewarding capital to serve the greater good. Um, You've been helping us achieve our mission, inspiring character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. And you've been incredibly generous with your time. You've been a keynote at one of our symposia. You've spoken to our students on a number of occasions. Um, You've been advising me as a CEO, a young startup founder, CEO personally a little bit. I want to just ask why you've been so generous. What's inspired you to get involved with Scholars of Finance? Um, and for all of our listeners, why might you encourage them to get involved as well? 
Yeah, happy to do that. Well, I think, you know, um, well, it's a, it's a great organization because the, you know, the mission of, of, you know, only way to make the world really a better place uh, for everybody. And I describe it this way, to make the economic pie better and more inclusive, bigger and more inclusive is to focus on these types of issues, showing that, you know, finance and financial markets, you know, must be a force for uh, good uh, in, in moving to a more sustainable and better future. And I think, you know, there are episodes in time in different parts of the industry that uh, haven't always approached it that way. Um, so, you know, many people if from if you're outside the world of finance and outside the world of scholars of finance, uh, you know, you, you'll run into those people who just think, oh, it's a bunch of, you know, uh, greedy uh, people out there and, and doing uh, poor things in the world and, and hurting you know, people somehow. But of course, that isn't isn't the case. And so it has to be that, you know, health, you know, we say sometimes here, you know, healthy markets uh, and healthy societies go hand in hand. So there's always mistakes and, and things that happen that are, are bad and wrong. But the more people that are engaged uh, in the way and with the vision and the values that you have at Scholars of Finance, then the better off the financial markets will be, the better off society will be. Anyway, I think that's an exciting, uh, that's, that's exciting path and journey. And that's why I'm engaged. Scott, amazing. Thank you so much. And we, all of us at Scholars of Finance, we are so grateful that you do engage, that you continue to share your insights and wisdom with us and experience with us. Um, with that, I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Any parting words for our listeners that you want to share before we wrap up? <laughs> I, I've shared so many words already. <laughs> no, I don't know. Keep up the good work. Keep up the good work and you guys keep, you know, keep pressing ahead with with new ideas and new ways to touch touch more people and and uh, do more things. That's it. Amazing. Scott Mather, great having you today. Thanks for all the insights. Um, hope you have an amazing Thanks. rest of your week and look forward to having you on again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Ross. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.